You're listening to Kiama Community Radio. This program is proudly supported by Kiama Community College. There's something for everyone, from nationally accredited career courses to seniors' computing, languages and lifestyle programs. Hi everyone, Fred Hollis here. Today, in the lead-up to Anzac Day, I'm interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Retired Gary Mackay, who was awarded the Military Cross for Gallantry while serving in Vietnam. Gary talks about his experiences in Vietnam, the history and importance of Anzac Day, and what Anzac Day means to him. Welcome, Gary. How are you today? Good, thanks, man. I'm reading your CV. I note that you were initially conscripted in 1968 and commissioned through the National Service Officer Training Unit. After Vietnam, you stayed in the Army, achieving the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Now, I'm very keen to hear your views on Anzac Day, given your specific history. But before that, we might find a little bit about your background. Can you tell us how you ended up in Vietnam in the first place? Yeah, it was funny. After I was conscripted and I went through Skyville, I was commissioned and sent to the 3rd Training Battalion at Singleton. I was sent to a unit that had just come back from Vietnam, so it looked like my national service time was going to expire before I was due to go. And at that stage, I'd gone through all of the training, I'd gone through all of the preparation, and then I wasn't going to get a Guernsey. And being 21 years of age and full of testosterone, I thought, I will have, I want to go. Uh, not that I'm a, a warmonger or anything like that, but all dad, dad and mum and all dad's brothers had been to the Second World War and I guess I just wanted to see if I could cut the mustard. So I signed on for an extra year okay. and then I got posted to the 4th Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment to go to Vietnam and it turned out we were the very last battalion to go to South Vietnam. How old were you when you were conscripted? 20. And at the time, conscription was in for, was it 12 months? or Two years. Two years. Yeah. So you just about finished your two years. Yeah, well, I had six months of training, then 12 months at Singleton, so my time was almost up. So I signed on to go. Were you interested in the military because of the family history? Oh, no. It was, I didn't want to be in the Army. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, no. I, I, uh, I was a uh, trainee computer programmer with the AMP Society wow. at Circular Quay, and my interests were rugby union, surfboat rowing, and I was in hot pursuit of Jennifer Ann Howard. I didn't want to go into the army. Jennifer Ann Howard? Yeah, that was my girlfriend. <laughs> yeah. and, and then all of a sudden, you know, my marble came out in the National Service yeah. ballad. How did you feel about being conscripted at the time? This was 1968. Yeah. Was there the controversy about it at that stage? Or yes. Was it get... Yeah. So how did you yeah. feel about it? Well, first, the first thing was I was pretty cheesed off because it was a ballot. It was a raffle and it was done on your birthday. Australia could not afford to have 100% male national service. They couldn't afford it. So they had to have selective dates. So that cheesed me off. But, you know, <laughs> no good bitching about it because, you know, just get on and do it. In 1968, they'd had the Tet Offensive in February, which right. really became the watershed for public opinion about the war because everyone thought the Allies were winning and it turned out that maybe that wasn't the case. And even though we were about six to nine months behind the United States in general public opinion, the groundswell had started and by the time I was conscripted in May 1968, 
we had things like the Save Our Sons movement and we'd already had some protest marches, which got bigger and bigger in 69 and 70. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, Fred, when I had to register for national service, I didn't know which side of the equator South Vietnam was on. Oh, okay. I totally no. ignorant. Well, once my marble came out, I got very interested right. in it. How did you feel on your return to Vietnam as far as what the public were thinking? Oh, well, we, we knew about it before we even went. I deployed out of Townsville, and just before our battalion sailed out of Townsville to go to South Vietnam on the HMO Sydney, there was a huge protest march in Townsville, and myself and a few other blokes went down to have a look and see what it was all about. Oh. We were worried that when we did our farewell parade through town that there would be someone to disrupt it, but nothing happened. So we knew about it before we left, because this was early 1971. We knew that when we went to the war, we may not get a full tour of duty in, because we knew that the war was coming to an end. We knew that the Allies weren't ever going to, quote, win, unquote, the yeah. war, but we still had a job to do. When we were in South Vietnam and we were told we're now withdrawing, we felt pretty bad because we felt like we were letting the South Vietnamese down. And, in fact, we were. So we had a pretty hollow feeling about it all. How did I feel when I came back? Well, I wasn't in great shape. I'd been badly wounded, and I spent about a year in hospital uh, getting put back together. But I'd see the moratoriums going on. I think the worst thing I saw was Bob Hawke walking up the steps of the Sydney Town Hall with a North Vietnamese trade union delegation. I thought... No, it was a bit ordinary. Hey, winners are grinners and uh, yeah, yeah. you move on. Yeah, didn't feel that good about it. Yeah. I, I objected to people protesting about to the soldiers. The people they really should have been protesting about were the politicians. politicians. When you got back, did you feel supported? Or, no, um, far let... from it. And after I got out of hospital and back to work, I mean, we had rules that because of the anti-Vietnam thing still going on, you, we couldn't wear uniform on public transport. We were told, you know, if you could avoid it, don't go shopping after work in uniform and all this sort of stuff, as if, you know, we had something to be ashamed of. Anyway, that only lasted until about 1975 and then everyone sort of got over it. If I can reflect for a moment, when I came back from Vietnam, I always thought that the saddest thing was losing my own soldiers in battle because my tour of duty was without casualties and for almost seven months and then... Right on the very last operation called Ivanhoe, we ran into the North Vietnamese in huge numbers and I lost four men in one day. I thought that was probably one of the saddest things I could imagine. And then I started going back to Viet. When I became a tour guide, I got to meet a lot of former opponents and then I got to meet some people who were also academic. And I was doing some research into the number of people killed in the war very rubbery figures but the best guesstimate i got from one of the bureaucrats i asked him how many missing in action from the north vietnamese Viet Cong group combined and he just shook his head and he said maybe a quarter of a million and now that's a quarter of a million families that have no idea where their son or daughter their husband their brother their father their uncle whatever they have no idea where they are. This is just the missing in action one. Just missing in action. Those mums and dads and brothers will never know. And I think that is so terribly yeah. sad because it's so important in the Buddhist religion to have the remains and they're not no. going to have them. No. It's terrible. I actually interviewed a former Viet Cong soldier that had fought at the Battle a long time and I commented to him on the, uh, 
the lack of animosity or anger or angst about Australians. And he said there were four reasons. One, we buried their dead. Two, we took care of their wounded after battle. Thirdly, we tried to do something for the people of Fuktui province by building bridges, roads, putting windmills in, reticulating energy or water. And the fourth thing he said was the Australians did not commit atrocities. And that was the reason that they look upon us uh, the way we do. KCR, Kiama Community Radio dot Do you recall your views on Anzac Day before you got... Oh, absolutely. I remember the very first time when I was at Gordon Primary School and I was selected to be one of the two kids. They had a boy and a girl. It must have been about when I was 10 or 11 to lay a wreath at the Kiringai Council Chambers. And I remember it. I felt as proud as punch, you know, because... I knew all about Anzac Day because of mum and dad. Oh yeah, I was very much aware. It was the one time of the year when dad's brothers get together. You know, they'd, dad and his brothers would go into town, they'd do the march, and then they'd, would all, they'd all end up at the Green Gate Hotel in Kalara. <laughs> Did you have any involvement in Anzac Day after you got back? Oh yeah, because I was serving, we'd always have an Anzac Day service wherever I was. And in those days, I was at Canungra for a couple of years after I got out of hospital. So we had really lovely Anzac days up at the Jungle Training Centre. And then when I left there and I went back to Brisbane, we always had Anzac Day at Anogra Barrack by units. My battalion was the first battalion to actually march through Brisbane as a formed military unit. And then everyone got on the bandwagon and thought, yeah, this is really good. And now the march through Brisbane is like what it is today. Well, I was going to ask you about that, how it's changed over the years. Did, oh, yeah, well, once upon a time, in, in like in Brisbane, for example, it used to only be returned servicemen. There would be an escort formation from one of the three services, you know, and they used to take turns. Then everyone said, no, the serving soldiers, sailors and airmen should be represented. So then they tacked them in, and oh. then units started participating and then we found when the Vietnam guys were tacked on to the end of the Anzac Day yes. that dependents or next of kin marched with their relatives' medals and that started growing and then they started being added to the end of the return servicemen from the Second World War, Korea, Malaya, Borneo. Right. And so it got bigger and bigger again. Yeah. You know? and, and the other thing I think I noticed was after Bicentennial, after about 1988, the crowds got bigger. I think because of the television coverage, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I thought it was fantastic, especially uh, if you're a serviceman, returned or otherwise, and you're marching through town, and people are cheering and waving and all that. It's a good feeling. And I used to have a look at the faces of my own soldiers who yeah. hadn't been to war, and they all stood about another foot taller yeah. and marched a lot smarter. There's always the banners which detail... Yeah, all the different campaigns. When did they start doing that? Right from the get-go. Oh, right. Yeah. So banners became very important. It also became a rallying point when they're all trying to assemble before the march. So they'd have have their banners up so people could zero in on them and and gather. Well, I always found interesting where the commentators would go through the history of those 
yeah. people in those units as they were going through. Oh, it's really good because, you know, they can see, like, units from the 9th Division, they'll see that, oh, there they were serving in North Africa, and then you see them again serving in New Guinea, or you see the 7th yeah. Division, and, for example, everyone go, oh, Syria. These guys were in Syria, Syria and Palestine yeah. in the Second World War, and all of a sudden it all starts to gel, you know. And the ships, of course, the different campaigns they served in the different yeah. theatres of war. How did you feel about the dawn service in Kiama in 2015? Did you go to that? I wish I had of, but uh, I work as a battlefield tour guide, and one of the battlefields I do tours is Gallipoli. So I was, cause I was in Gallipoli for the centenary of Anzac. The company that I subcontract to as a guide, we had 2,000 clients. About 1,000 of our clients had been allowed to go to the dawn service at Gallipoli. The people that couldn't go to the dawn service, we had our own dawn service at Fort Dardanos, just south of Chinakali. That was a very important battery point. Is that where they thank all those British ships? Yeah. I've I've been been to Gallipoli and I've been to that Well, Fort Dardanos, it's actually a a very important battery position and there are five gunners who were killed there while they were busy sinking about seven major British capital ships. I looked at them. There's a memorial there and it's to all these British ships. And when you look at their gun emplacement and you look at the narrows there, they would have been sitting ducks, those. Oh, um, yeah. Not to mention the fact that they'd laid mines and they had torpedo stations, fixed torpedo stations. But they also had field artillery using 75 and 105 millimetre artillery pieces that were mobile. They were being horse-drawn up the coast. And they were shelling him as well, so they're on a hiding now. Oh. They were never going to force the straits. No. In the Anzac Day ceremony in Kiama 2015, it was held at the lighthouse. Mm. I don't know how many people were there, but it must have been a thousand people. Oh no, it was more than that. The guys were up there, were talking to the police afterwards, and they put the crowd at between four and five. But and, the- and I've done a couple of blowhole dawn services since, and we've been averaging 5,000. I just couldn't believe the atmosphere. Young people, old people, everybody was so, it was just so moving. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful spot to have it. And if you've got a bit of a surf running and the blowholes go in the background, to an old soldier like me, it, it sounds like distant artillery. Yeah. yeah. I've been to a few of these battlefields and memorials. I have been to Gallipoli. I've been to Villers Bretonneux in France, Vietnam, a few places there, and Normandy as well. The idea that the memorials at these places somehow or other glorify war is patently ridiculous. Yeah. If you've been to these places and just looked at some of the graves of the young men and women who've died there, of both sides in any conflict, you certainly realise that that these memorials don't glorify war. Mm. Similarly, I never get the impression that Anzac Day is a celebration. It's always, to me, it's a commemoration. Oh, yeah, definitely. Kemal Ataturk, who led the Turkish troops at Gallipoli and became the father of modern Turkey, summed it up beautifully in a statement he made after the First World War and which now appears at the Gallipoli Memorial. He said a message to mothers who lost their sons at Gallipoli. Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. 
therefore rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Mehmets to us, where they lie side by side here in this country of ours. You the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well. It's beautiful, isn't it? It is beautiful. Yeah. And it's pretty gracious considering we were yeah. <laughs> attacking another country. And I think that went a long way to restoring a sense of equilibrium between the opponents at the end of it all. Okay, we've had our war, now let's get over it, let's go forward. Yep. And they and we've and Turkey and Australia have gone forward together. And of course Ataturk was the go to man during the Gallipoli campaign. Every time we looked like getting on top of them, <laughs> the bloke that was there to stop us was yeah, Ataturk. Yeah. Some people suggest that we shouldn't hold a commemoration on April the 25th, given that the actual day marks the start of a campaign where we were defeated. We weren't actually fighting against a foe that was threatening Australia. Plenty of other conflicts to choose from. Blah, blah, blah. What's your view on that? No, rubbish. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's Anzac for a reason. And, right. all, and that is deeply embedded in the fact that the Australian-New Zealand Army Corps were fighting together at Gallipoli. The comment was a war because we were defeated. I'll throw in the comment that there are no winners in a war. Having been in combat and having been in a war zone, and I've seen the pain and the hurt on both sides of the abyss, there are no winners. In summary, what does Anzac Day mean to you now? Several things. It's a chance for me to commemorate all those who've gone before, to reflect on all the guys and women, and I say women because having been through the hospital system, there are a lot of nurses I have to thank, to one of those who served, and also to remember the guys who paid the ultimate price. It's a chance to remember them, to honour them, and it's also an opportunity to get together with people you might have served with, and even if you haven't served with them in battle or in a war zone, you're still in the brotherhood or sisterhood. It's a bond. There's a camaraderie there because we all wore uniform. Time does heal, but the memories never fade completely. And I always use Anzac Day when we have that minute silence that I look back on the guys that I lost in the war zone, but also the men from my platoon that I commanded who've passed since. And after all of the parades and the service and all of that and the reflection, then a chance to get together, break bread, have a few beverages, tell lies, <laughs> recall the good times, give the bad times a flick. That, that doesn't do you any good. And just remember the, the heroes. Heroes, to me, are the men who did not return and women who did not return from whatever conflict it is. Anzac Day is important to me. I cherish the day. And what I loved, you know, remember last year when we couldn't do anything? Yeah. I went down the bottom of our hill here in Michael Crescent in Kiama Downs and just about every one of my neighbours was out with their candle and I had my I had my Bluetooth speaker and I played the last post and Ravel mm. to do the ode. And it was so nice to see all my neighbours out there Beautiful. supporting it. Well, I'd like to thank Lieutenant Colonel Gary Mackay for your perspectives today and for your service to Australia. Thank you very much. Thanks, Fred.
You've been listening to Kiama Community Radio. The views, information or opinions expressed during this segment are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Kiama Community Radio.